6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 9 through chapter 14. But the main point is, is that it's inspired and it's a... uh, uh, special miracle of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, obviously, that enabled uh, men of God to write the Word of God as God wanted it written, complete and without error in the original. And that's uh, a very, very key idea. Even here in the book of Ecclesiastes, which what it says is not necessarily true, but it's it's the perspective that God wanted to have of Solomon's perception, if you follow me. It's important to understand that. And if this, uh, I encourage you, if you have, to, to review our briefing package on how we got our Bible, which goes through with the whole origin and gives you a perspective of how these things come and what we really mean when we say it's inspired and so forth. But that uh, those those views include the Psalms, the Proverbs, and and the Book of Ecclesiastes, you know, because, you, despite its rather peculiar point of view. And uh, so, but continuing uh, now. Oh, one other thing um, in verse eleven: the words of the wise are as goads. Well, I think we understand what a goad is, something that goads you forward and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. There is an idiom here you may not be familiar with. I can't resist diverting for a moment to look at Isaiah 22, that the words of God uh, in Ecclesiastes are alluded to as a nail. And it's interesting to me to notice how the Holy Spirit tends to use figures of speech consistently. In Isaiah 22, verses 23, uh, God is saying, I will fasten him, I believe speaking of the Messiah, as a nail in a sure place, for he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house, and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups even to all the vessels of flagons. So here again is this just using as a figure speech the nail in the sense of hanging meaning on that, or in this case, hanging the glory of God on. In the next verse, verse 25 of Isaiah 22, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off, for the Lord hath spoken it. Now here's a rather surprising little nugget tucked away in Isaiah that is usually missed if you're just reading through it casually. Backing up here now. I'll fast him as a nail in a sure place. Remember, one of the titles that John uses of Jesus Christ is the Word of God. That's the way he opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and so on. And in that same writer, John, in the book of Revelation sees the writer in Revelation 19 writing with a name written on his thigh, the Word of God. And so it's interesting that we have here this phrase being used, a nail as a Word of God, by an Ecclesiastes. 
and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, for he will be for a glorious throne to his father's house. We get, we can begin to see the linkage there, that the, it, hidden behind this figure of speech is a, a reference, an allusion to none other than Messiah, who will be coming on that white horse in Revelation 19. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, and so on. But then we hit verse 25. If that's true, if we, if we see this nail as an allusion to Jesus Christ, Notice verse 25. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in a sure place be removed. Really? And be cut down and fall. And the burden that was upon it shall be cut out, cut off. For the Lord hath spoken it. So here's just a hint that the Messiah is to be cut off, to be killed. We find it explicitly predicted in Daniel chapter 9. But here it is also in Isaiah 22. I find that, I find that, just a little digression. Uh, uh, I, I think it's fascinating as you get sensitive to the fact that the scripture is one integrated message. You see evidence again and again of what the experts call the principle of expositional constancy. What they mean by that is that the same idioms follow through. That uh, we have uh, Jesus spoken of as a rock, the stone of stumbling, the stone that the builders rejected. And uh, uh, we find that that's how Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, can say the rock, speaking of the wilderness wanderings, the rock that followed them was Christ. Not literally, idiomatically, but, and so it goes. So it's interesting to see the consistency that the Holy Spirit, you see evidence that, that the re, even though it's penned by 40 different guys over thousands of years, these 66 books have a single author, namely God himself. Let's get back to Ecclesiastes. And further by these, my son, be admonished. In, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. <laughs> I think any of us have been to college, have had a personal uh, experience with this. Now at the first blush, verse 12 sounds like it could be viewed as a, as a negative uh, view of, of learning, but that's not really the case. What really is implied here is a warning not to go beyond what God has written in His Word. And uh, indeed, there are many books, and, 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 and that can be a worrying story. But basically, don't let man's books rob you of God's wisdom. In effect, the way the NIV puts it, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, that is, the words of the wise. So it's a, it's a question of prioritization, a question of focus, and that sort of thing. So putting it another way, these nails, if I'm going to use the idiom of the earlier verses, are sure, and you can depend on them. And you don't test God's truth by many books written by men even though elaborate seminary degrees test, uh, uh, you know, uh, you always test all men's uh, works, however many degrees they might have, by the Word of God. Our, our textbook is the Bible, and our teacher is the Holy Spirit. In John 14 and 15 and 16, there's just littered with verses that emphasize that. And the, the Holy Spirit may use a particular teacher to instruct us, but sometimes he, you, you'll get the greatest insights from sometimes the most... Uh, Modest or humblest means. So um, often the people that may impress us as being articulate are not necessarily the ones the Holy Spirit will use to drive home a point or to bring bring in an in insight. And as we go, of course, there's never any end to the new insights and, and uh, uh, new lessons that we learn as we go forward. Okay, so then that, that's the schoolroom view. Now the final picture is one of stewardship. And from verse 13 and 14, that's what uh, Psalm is going to focus on. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is his wrap-up. 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Some people have said that our lives are a manifestation of what we really think about God. If you examine your life, it will reveal what you think, really think about God. We don't own our lives because it's a gift of, it's a gift from God himself. We are stewards of what he's given us. And one day, we're going to have to give an account. There isn't, there is a, a final exam. Some people are only spending their lives. Other people are wasting their lives. Relatively few are investing their lives. It was Corey Ten Boom that said, the measure of life after all is not its duration, but its donation. And uh, so anyway, verse 13 focuses on fearing God and keeping his commandments. And verse uh, uh, 14 is going to suggest that we prepare for the final judgment. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So that's the final conclusion. And so the book of Ecclesiastes ends here, but it ends where the book of Proverbs picks up. Because it begins in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it says that uh, it's an admonition to fear the Lord. The, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is a, what does it mean by that? Attitude of reverence uh, and awe, if you will, to show to God because you love him and respect his power and his greatness. And that's one of the subtle things, by the way, to understand the difference between praise, thanksgiving, and worship. Those are three different things. We tend to use those as synonyms. Thanking God, being grateful is obvious. Everywhere we look, every, the more we are sensitive to our lives and what's going on and the creation around us, we have uh, innumerable reasons to be grateful. And, uh, uh, and praise may be a close kin to that, but there's a concept of worship where we just simply are awed by who God is. One of the most... Uh, profoundly moving books that uh, my wife has put together. She's got a number that have been very life-moving, but the, her latest is creating enormous comments. Private worship, the key to joy. Many very seasoned reviewers have come back in just awe. How do you worship God? Do we really? turns out when you really examine what it means, you realize we don't really worship God, and yet that's our highest duty. How do you do it? And then how do you do it? And uh, it's not it's not obvious. So I won't get into all that here, but I encourage you to take a look at that if you get a chance to. Now, the person who fears the Lord is one that is going to pay attention to his word and obey it. Anyone that uh, say they love him uh, uh, won't tempt the Lord by deliberately disobeying or playing with sin. An unholy fear makes people run away from God, but a holy fear brings them to their knees in loving submission. Oswald Chambers said, The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Very direct summary. Prophet Isaiah says it pretty well in Isaiah 8.13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And the psalmist describes just such a man in Psalm 112. You can put it in your notes and look at it at your leisure. God created life, and God alone knows how it should be managed. And he wrote a manual of instructions. It's a wise person who reads and obeys. You know how it is when you bring something home from the, from the department store. You know, when all else fails, you read the instructions, right? Well, in this case, it's smart to start there. And the Bible is our instruction book. 
if you say you believe God, then it should result in obedient living. Otherwise, your fear of God is only a sham. The dedicated believer will want to spend time daily in the Scriptures to get to know the Father better and discovering His will. And that's how Proverbs really opens up with Proverbs one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, by the way, this uh, this last phrase in in, uh, in verse thirteen, this is the whole duty of man, could be translated that this is the end of man, or this is uh, for all men, the pur- purpose of life in all men. Campbell Morgan suggests that this is the whole of man. He writes in unfolding the message of the Bible. He says, man in his entirety must begin with God, the whole of man, the fear of God. So when Solomon looked at life under the sun, everything was fragmented, and he could see no real pattern. That's where he opened the book, if you recall. But as he looked at life from God's point of view, everything came together as a whole. If you go back then and reread the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll notice that in the early fragmented, what seems to be pessimistic or cynical point of view, it's because he was looking at it from man's point of view. When he goes back and reexamines it, from chapters 3 through 10, you begin to realize, as he puts God in the picture, that it starts to make sense. And, uh, of course, the last verse is the preparation for final judgment. Back in chapter 3, in verse 17, he said, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. And in chapter 11, it said, uh, uh, verse 9, it said, but you know that all these God will bring into judgment. So this theme has been echoed through the thing, but it's, being, it's climaxing here in uh, verse 14. And see, man may seem to get away with sin, but sins will eventually be exposed and judged righteously. And tragedy, other tragedy about sin, sin tends to be contagious. It has a way of multiplying. Many seem to, many men seem to get away with it, but their sins will find out and be judged. Those who have not trusted Lord Jesus Christ will suffer the consequences of their sin. And uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the eternity of punishment is a thought that crushes the heart. The Lord God is slow to anger, but when he is once aroused to it, as he will be against those who finally reject his son, he will put forth all his omnipotence to crush his enemies. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. It's also been said that no one will be punished for their sin. They'll be punished for rejecting the provision God has made for their sin. Moving on here, uh, the, uh, the six times throughout this book, Solomon has told us to enjoy life while we can. But nowhere does he advise us to try to enjoy or, or toy with sin. The joys of the present depend on the security of the future. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your sins have already been judged on the cross and as Romans 8.1 opens up, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. And what a blessing that is. But if you die and have not trusted Christ, you will face the judgment throne and be lost. So going back to Solomon's opening question, is life worth living? Yes, if you are truly alive through the faith in Jesus Christ. Then you can be satisfied no matter what God may permit to come into your life. Remember 1 John 5.12, He that hath the Son has life, who does not have the Son does not have life. The difference between the Old and the New Testament is the difference between the man who says there is nothing new under the Son and the God who says, Behold, I make all things new. 
Let me go over that one more time. The difference between the Old and the New Testament is the difference between the man who said there's nothing new under the sun and the God who says, Behold, I make all things new. I have to say one thing. The way I usually pull my notes together for these sessions is to glean, just to go through a lot of commentaries. I collect them. And more often than not, the ones that have a you know, sound exegesis tend to centralize pretty much on the same theme. But I'm fascinated in this particular series, although there's probably a dozen different sources that I've uh, tapped for some of the insights. Overwhelmingly, the, it's Warren Wearsby's commentary that shines here as really having, I think, captured uh, Solomon's heart. And he points out, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this book urges you to do so without delay. Because no matter how much wealth, education, social prestige you may have, life without God is futile. You're just chasing after the wind, is what, which is what the word vanity really means. If you expect to find satisfaction, personal fulfillment in the things of the world, you're kidding yourself. And Jesus said the same thing in Mark 8, verse 36. You all know the verse, For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? See, Solomon himself, here's a, here, one of the richest men ever lived, the king, one of the wisest men. He experienced life and discovered there was no lasting satisfaction, possessions or pleasures or power or prestige. He had everything, and yet his life was empty. Boy, we should learn from that. There's no need for you and me to repeat those tragic experiments. We should try to accept Solomon's conclusions and avoid the heartache and pain that will be endured when you experiment in the laboratory of life. These experiments are costly and could prove fatal. When you belong to the family of God through faith in the Son of God, life is not monotonous. It is a daily adventure that builds character and enables you to serve others to the glory of God. So instead of making decisions on the basis of vain wisdom of this world, you have God's wisdom available to you. And that's what James emphasizes in the first chapter of his epistle. As far as wealth and pleasure are concerned, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. God knows what you can enjoy the most, and He also knows what to keep from you for your own security and safety. Proverbs 10, verse 22, The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and He adds no sorrow with it. See, the pleasures of the world do not satisfy, and the quest for power and position is futile. And in Jesus we have all that we need for life and death, time and eternity. And if there's one truth that Solomon has emphasized throughout this whole book, it is the certainty of death. You can't escape it. It's certain. No matter what Solomon enjoyed or accomplished, the frightening shadow of death was always hovering over him. But see, Jesus Christ has defeated death. He is the resurrection and the life. John 11 and so on. It's the victory of His resurrection that means that our labor is not in vain if it's in the Lord. And of course, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then all that you work for and live for will ultimately perish, and you will perish too. But faith in Jesus Christ brings you the gift of eternal life and the privilege of serving Him and investing your years in that which is eternal. So that's really the first message of Ecclesiastes, is turn from the futility of sin in the world, put your faith in God, the person of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and have received the gift of eternal life, then Solomon asks you, are you living for the Lord or the things of this world? See, remember, Solomon knew God and was greatly blessed by him, and he turned from the Lord and went his own way. You know, that's really scary. Here's a guy that really had it together, you would think, and yet he does not finish well. No wonder he became pessimistic and skeptical as he looked at life. 
He didn't have God's perspective because he wasn't living for God's purposes. And more than one professed Christian has followed his bad example and started living for the things of this world. Paul wrote himself about one of his associates in the ministry. Remember in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. How tragic. In 1 John 2, Apostle John tells us, Love not the world, neither things that are in the world. Of course, James also admonishes us to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. When you start living for the world instead of for the will of God, you begin to look at life from the wrong perspective, under the sun and not above the sun. And instead of seeking those things which are above, you start majoring on the things below. And the wrong vision causes you to adopt the wrong values and to stop living for the eternal. And of course, the result is disappointment and defeat. And the only remedy is repentance and the confession of sin. And the American novelist, Peter DeVries, suggested it like this. He says, Life is like a crowded superhighway with a bewildering cloverleaf exits on which a man is liable to find himself speeding back in the direction he came. Interesting. How many people start well, work well, and yet find themselves uh, somehow gotten turned around? Now, Ecclesiastes also contains a message for the faithful believer who wants to serve the Lord and have a fulfilled life uh, in Jesus Christ. Psalm says, don't bury your head in the sand and pretend the problems don't exist. That's what. That's why he's, he's not pessimistic. He's just soberly realistic. And uh, he says, uh, don't pretend that problems don't exist. They do. Face life honestly and look at life from God's perspective. Man's philosophies will fail you. Use your God-given wisdom, but don't expect to solve every problem or answer every question. The important thing is to obey God's will and enjoy all that He gives you. Remember, death is coming, so be prepared. This business of wisdom, I really like that. We don't live by explanations. We live by promises. That makes all the difference in the world. Another summary, as you try, as I try to find ways to summarize this, the, the book, is what Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. So anyway, King Solomon has already explored the road exhaustively. And he's given us a dependable map to follow. And if we follow God's word, we will be more than satisfied. Warren Wiersbe calls his commentaries, be this or be that. He picks a word. And his commentary on Ecclesiastes is, be satisfied. Be satisfied. And that really is, I think, the call of this book. But life is an adventure, and it is unpredictable. It is uh, littered with opportunities. I think hardly a day goes by where God doesn't find another way to ask you the question, do you trust me? But it's an adventure. And the real question is, are we ready for the journey? Each one of our lessons has some has some questions for the student to answer and so forth, but uh, also some discussion questions. So as you're driving home, um, you might ask yourself, some, uh, discuss these. Is, was Solomon's perspectives relevant to today's world? And uh, did Solomon's perspectives impact your life? And if so, how? And uh, do you have any insights from the New Testament that modify or amplify the perspectives that emerge from the book of Ecclesiastes? And the other question you might think about is you try to understand Solomon. Do you expect to meet him in heaven? And there's no, there's no simple answer to that because he started well, but he went apostate. There's no record that he repented, but he may have. But... Uh, it's an interesting question. One of the things that if, when people ask for, okay, what kind of a project shall I undertake? Uh, one of the things I suggest is uh, tracks uh, as you can from the scripture, Old and New Testament, Solomon's spiritual history from his early years through his apostasy. And uh, 
and then examine each of the allusions to him in the New Testament and see what you come up with. The other question that we always ask, okay, what do you do next? Obviously, you can't prepare for the next session because this closes the study of Ecclesiastes. One of the places you can go is to the next book, which is Solomon's also, Song of Solomon. It'll show you a whole nother side of this complex personality. Or you can go to the book of Proverbs and glean his practical answers to the, to the affairs of life. But with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons and the example of this much-blessed man, a man that was rich beyond imagining, that was king, one who was also wise, the wisest of men that have lived. We thank you for his lessons, and we thank you for the boundaries of his insights, to realize that even he, with his wisdom, was nothing without you, Father. Help us, Father, to look to your word as our guide and not man's wisdom. Help us, Father, to look to the resources you've given us rather than those things that we might covet. And we thank you, Father, that the certainty of death holds no terror for us because our Lord and Savior is the victor even over death on our behalf. We thank you, Father, for the preciousness of your word. And we do pray, Father, that you would, through your Holy Spirit and through your word, illuminate for each of us specifically the path ahead, what you'd have of us. Help us, Father, each of us, to grow in grace the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Father, that we each might be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities and resources you put at our disposal. We ask all of this, Father, that we might be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.